The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live, turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. It is nine minutes after eight. Thanks for tuning in to AM Live. And now, of course, on the forum at eight, uh, we are embarking on a brand new series where we will be speaking to thought leaders uh, from various uh, parts of the country, from various institutions and just a cross section of South Africans about South Africa and where we find ourselves at the moment. And uh, they are free to choose uh, whatever it is that they would like to hone in on. And we'll be speaking to a number of people. Uh, We already have confirmed some of them, but many still coming on board and just helping us uh, to look at and uh, traverse this current political terrain that we find ourselves on. And uh, this morning, we kick it off with uh, Professor Richard Calland. Now, if you go to our webpage, if you've missed it, uh, on safm.co.za, Dr. uh, Professor Richard Calland has written his thoughts uh, for today, and it is there. It's not too long, so you can quickly just hop over and read it. Alternatively, you can just listen to the discussion. But of course, if you've read it, you may want to uh, actually extrapolate more of uh, the intricacies uh, as uh, put out in that particular uh, article. So uh, you can go there. I've also posted a link on my uh, Twitter page uh, so you can have a look at it there. And of course, you're most welcome to join in and ask questions uh, after uh, we've spoken about this for a minute or so, or uh, perhaps a little bit more with Professor Calland. 0891-104-208 is our call-in number. You can also tweet or Facebook us at AM Live on SAFM or at Sakina Kamwendo. And you can send us an SMS to the number 40938 and it's charged at 150 per SMS. So Professor Richard Calland, who is a political commentator and law professor at the University of Cape Town, writes that South Africa is at a crossroads and says that the country seems to be gripped by growing tensions as it approaches a political precipice, uh, much in the mood uh, of the years leading up to the 1994 elections. And he joins us now. Professor Callan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, good morning to you, Sakeen, and thank you very much for having me on. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on the first of this new series, and I hope I can make a reasonable contribution to it getting your ship underway. Now, I'm sure uh, no doubt about that. But of course, you know, a very interesting times we find ourselves in um, and um, much happening at the moment. I mean, uh, just before uh, the news, we were talking to our reporter in Pulukwane about yet another march. There seems to be quite a few of those happening at the moment. Um, And then there's so much going on uh, intra party and uh, parties against one another. There's just a lot happening at the moment. But you'd say that this is somehow reminiscent of what we saw uh, before the 1994 elections. How so? Well, it feels like that in the sense that there is a lot of tension in the air. The temperatures are running high. There's a sense of approaching a precipice. There's a sense of the country having to make some big choices about its future. And as we know, in the last year or two, we've seen a lot more, I think, racial tension um, as well as social tension. And there's a sense of a lot of people in the country, I'm mainly referring to working class folks, who feel very insecure about the future. Um, as the former 
Finance Minister Pravin Gordon put it in his budget speech in February, there is an economic crisis and a, and a country that has 35% unemployment, as he admitted that day, uh, doesn't face a bright future unless it can find the wherewithal to produce a new social consensus, a new economic consensus about how to shift the economy in an intelligent fashion which uses the best of the country's resources and which does uh, create growth that produces inclusive growth which produces jobs. And that perhaps is the central challenge. And the political aspect of this is, is really important in the sense that we cannot hope to, to reach that consensus unless we've got the right leadership. We cannot hope to move forward economically unless the institutions of government are reliable, are trusted, are run by the right people, are capable, and are, credi- and, and are credible in the eyes of people who will want to invest in this economy. So the political and the economic uh, are, are really at a, at a crossroads here. They, 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 they interlink interlink in a very powerful fashion and we have to understand that and we have to first of all solve the leadership problem because i think it's it's very clear that we have the wrong president at the moment. we have a president who has led the country in a very bad direction and has become and i put this in the mail and guardian article a couple of weeks ago increasingly dictatorial in his conduct and we have to recognize that and, and fight back and there is a fight back there is a very strong democratic, progressive movement that is saying enough is enough. And I take great heart from that. I think this is a democracy that is robust, that is rugged, that's working hard, but it has to defend the gains of the past and it has to make sure that the state remains a democratic state, a progressive state that services the Constitution and its underlying values of human dignity, equality and freedom. And just speaking to that, uh, there are those, of course, who will argue that President Jacob Zuma is democratically elected and therefore has every right uh, to be in that position. And moreover, there are those who agree with the direction in which he is taking this country when he speaks about radical economic transformation, uh, when he speaks about a more radical approach to uh, the land question and redress in that regard. So what do you say to those people? Uh, Because they believe that this is indeed the right man for the job who will get um, us as a nation to the promised land where the economic situation at least is sorted out. Well, this goes to the heart of the matter. I'm glad you raised it early in this conversation, Sakina. It really puts a finger on the, on the, on the pulse of the matter. Uh, two things. First of all, we have to remember that President Zuma himself does not have a direct democratic electoral mandate. He is chosen by Parliament. Parliament elects him. We choose at election time a party to represent us in in Parliament, and then proportional to the votes they get, they get a certain number of seats. And the ANC has won every single election since uh, 1994, decisively. And it then used its majority to elect uh, President Zuma in 2014. That means that President Zuma can be removed by Parliament. And, of course, no confidence vote that lies ahead in the coming weeks is going to be a very important point and an even more important uh, element of that will be the constitutional court decision about whether that no confidence vote should be conducted under a, a, a electoral uh, process of secret ballots and i'm sure you'll want to discuss that uh, in due course sakina but putting that aside for the moment your, your bigger question which is a very powerful question about the direction of travel in terms of, of so-called radical economic transformation 
I have to say that we, we have to be very careful to unpick the language we're using at the moment. Just because you call something radical economic transformation doesn't mean that it is radical economic transformation. And if one looks very carefully at the people that are arguing for it, and, and if you look very closely at the program of action, insofar as there is a coherent program of action that lies behind it, what one discovers is that this is another example of the kind of populist, nationalist, thrust of politics that we're seeing throughout the world at the moment. We're into the, a period of great instability politically around the world. I think the, the, the globe uh, and the country is probably, uh, well, in terms of geopolitics, it's as unstable as it was perhaps in the 1930s, and we know where that led. Um, at, at home, uh, domestically, I, I, I've already made the point that I feel that it's very much like 94. There's a sense of, of a big crossroads and big choices having to be made. What I think there is a clear consensus about is that the economy cannot carry on as it is, that it has to change. It has to transform. More people have to be able to enter the economy. Jobs have to be created. Decent work has to be created. The question is how. And I am not convinced by these calls for radical economic transformation. I think the branding itself we've now seen as exposed as having been branded by uh, a British uh, company, Bell Pottinger, that made its name when it helped bring Margaret Thatcher to power in the 1980s. But that apart, uh, it seems to me that the, the radical economic transformation brand is actually an empty vessel ideologically and intellectually, and that programmatically there's very little to it. So when, for example, the president made his State of the Nation address in February um, and talked about radical economic transformation, the program of action that he outlined under that banner was actually very narrow, very limited, and actually very sensible because he talked about um, the need to deconcentrate ownership and power in the economy. I think we must all agree that that is necessary and appropriate. Um, and we must, however, get beyond that to ask how do we do it in a way that is truly inclusive, that doesn't just transfer power and wealth from a, a small number of, of white people to a small number of black people. I think what we're really talking about is how do we intelligently transform the economy so that it creates new industries, uh, new opportunities for people to enter the economy, and land may be part of that. And, and we have to recognize that land is a very emotive issue, mm. but as uh, Dehan Masaneki, the former Deputy Chief Justice, said to my constitutional law class a few weeks ago, he said it cannot be right that people on the, on the land of their birth do not have safe, secure housing, that they are homeless. So that can't be right. So we have to look at that. And I think in his statement, what he was doing was linking issues of poverty and dignity to questions of land ownership. And we have to think intelligently about how one, one uh, understands that relationship and commits to a land reform program that doesn't have to change the Constitution. In fact, one of the things that frustrates me is when people say that the Constitution um, uh, rules that there should only be a willing seller, willing buyer approach to land reform. That's not the case at all. There's nothing to stop the government over the last 20 years of having entered into a much more aggressive, assertive approach to land redistribution. And why it hasn't is a question that perhaps only they can answer. But it isn't the Constitution's uh, fault. And I think that's the, the point I want to make. Oh, and I was hoping to ask you, why do you think that hasn't happened? <laughs> uh, but, but, but then, uh, talking about nationalist fervor, which is not peculiar to South Africa at uh, this uh, point in time, and looking at the factors that motivate that sort of a feeling. And you spoke about the land. You spoke about the economy. Um, you touched earlier on about the high levels of unemployment in this country. And 
it goes further than just government because we're sitting in a country where the economy has remained largely untransformed and uh, continues to struggle because one of the reasons for that, and this is just one, is that business refuses to invest in the South African economy. How do we deal with that in any meaningful way? How does business come to the party to show that they too are in it for the long haul? They too want the best for this country. Well, again, let me try and answer that, that very very good and difficult question in, in two ways. The first is to talk about the international investment community. Now, you know, one may not like the global economic order, but at the moment it's the only game in town and we are a part of that system. And we either turn our back on it with a, an alternative plan or we accept its kind of conventions and rules and we play by them. At the moment, we're not playing by them because what the international investment community, and I, I talk to many of the people who, who make decisions about whether or not capital will be moved into South African business. They, they, they like South African business. They believe that companies are well run here. They like quite a lot of what they see about our democracy, but they are very concerned about governance levels, particularly in state-owned enterprise. They're very concerned about corruption, particularly around the president, and they're very concerned about issues of political leadership. And uh, very much reflecting what uh, I think it was uh, uh, S&P said when they downgraded South Africa uh, a couple of weeks ago, those concerns, those those, those worries about the quality of political leadership, the state of of governance, uh, means that they are, are withholding their, their capital and they're holding back from investing at a time when we really do need uh, their investment. That's one element of it. But your other question about what should the private sector here do, and I've been arguing for, for many years that the private sector needs to do more. It needs to come to the party. It needs to be willing to concede more. But as a cabinet minister put it to me the other day when I was discussing this with uh, that person, uh, what they said was we need a, a grand strategic uh, understanding. We need to have a grand strategic deal between the main uh, economic uh, actors in, in the economy. And that would be, of course, government, labor, uh, and business. So let's take an example around apprenticeships. It's, it's taken the best part of 10 years to get even a, a relatively modest apprenticeship scheme in place where young people could go to a company and begin to learn the skills necessary for them to be effective uh, employees. Now, there was huge resistance to that from both business and, and uh, labor. And part of the problem was business wanted to, to do it, but only on the basis that they would have more flexibility in terms of labor law. And unions were reluctant to concede ground in terms of the big labor law victories they'd won in the 90s. Now, the only way you can resolve that impasse is by having a a big strategic conversation uh, convened by someone who's credible uh, and who can can pull off a consensus that shifts the ground and, 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 and builds consensus around the concessions that need to be made by both sides. And that's what I think Praveen Gordon was talking about in his February budget speech, again referring to that speech, when he said at the end of the speech, we need to have or need to consider an economic cadessa was the way he put it. And that, I think, was a reference to the fact that back in the early 90s, there was a political cadessa that led it to a, a very fine political transition, a magnificent constitution that provides a transformational um, uh, backdrop and framework for change. But what there wasn't was enough thinking and enough consensus building around how to transform the economy. And that's the conversation you're saying we need now. But to do that, we need the right leadership and the right standards being set by government. And one of the reasons I think that many people feel that Cyril Ramaphosa would be the best person to be the 
the, the, the leader of this country at this time is because he has the skill set, the credibility with the different uh, social and economic actors necessary to pull off that kind of high-level strategic uh, deal. Well, that's an interesting one because I'd like for us, uh, for us to get into that a uh, little later on because will anything really change? Uh, will there be any radical changes if Cyril Ramaphosa or anyone else for that matter from the African National Congress were to take over from President Jacob Zuma? But we have callers uh, 891 and we'll take those and of course uh, some of your messages coming through as well. 40938 is the SMS line number and you can tweet to Facebook AM Live on SAFM. But uh, let's start with um, Tandegi in Kruenstadt. Good morning. Good morning, Sakina. Welcome. Yeah, and thank you after long. And thanks for your host today. You see, Sakina, there are three issues that I want to raise with this kind of inputs. Firstly, the kind of comments or criticism that is leveled towards this question of radical economic transformation as a president. Firstly, some of the people who are sharing their narrative on this particular issue currently in the country, they are selectively looking at this matter, leaving other aspects that are very, very directly linked to. For example, the question of the speech by Helen Zille. Your expert never commented on that on colonialism. They were quiet. Two... When the president talks about economic transformation, radical economic transformation, they begin to isolate an individual in the midst of a policy of an organization called ANC. Now, the question, therefore, is not around the ANC at this point in time. They are targeting the president. By attacking the president, they attack the ANC one way or the other. And that's the question they selectively look like. For example, he made mention of the deputy president currently of the ANC. That selective uh, politicking on the leadership of the organization. But thirdly, when these particular debates are continuing, they, they forget one thing important, that before 1994, when we were struggling, we were beat at in the, in the course of the struggle, they never advanced this kind of narrative. Now that we led the struggle and we brought about freedom, it is the moment to come and show off their heads. Now, it is the moment for now that when the president talks about radical transformation of the economy, everyone must right rally behind that particular call and call on government, apparatus of government, to ensure that the majority of the people of South Africa begin to taste the fruits of democracy. This kind of debate, they are delaying and take us backward because we are delayed by these particular tendencies to transform our economy. Because once you delay the transformation of the economy through disengagement, you delay the real agenda of transformation of our society. So and I don't understand it, what you mean by that, Mtandegi, because um, it is not the job of 
shows like this to um, come up with policy direction that needs to be followed to bring about the requisite redress. So how do we then contribute to the delays of what was supposed to have happened or at least started to have happened and perhaps has not been sufficiently addressed? How How is that the fault of those outside um, of the people who are tasked with making sure that that actually happens? Yeah, in the course Sakina, because of that important question, in the course of developing government policy matters, they are not developed in the secret rooms. They are the part of the public engagement. Mm-hmm. Now, in the course of developing those particular policy positions of government, the very same experts, let them share their expertise, but they hold back their views and begin to work on their whatever alleged uh, weaknesses. I'm I'm having a serious problem because we need to build this country and avoid the tragedy this country we thought 1994 has yielded in. Now, I'm the view that they must play their very positive role in criticism. They cannot select who should lead the the country. The people have decided, the parliament have decided in in 2014. Their role is to complement that role. Yeah, our proposals we expect. Don't come and wait for the moment and share off your position. Okay. Which position is colored in many ways? That's Mtandegi in Kronstadt. Let's take one more before the news. Sheila in Cape Town. Good morning, Sheila. Hi, yes. I just want to say something about um, economic options. Um, a couple of years ago in Switzerland, um, a referendum was held about a basic income grant. And basically the idea is that all around the world people are struggling with with unemployment because machines and automation are taking away so many jobs and it's just not necessary for everybody in the world to work anymore. There are even robots who can flip burgers now. So this is this is leading to, I think, things like Brexit and, and Trump and so on around the world. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a big issue, but I just want to make a couple of quick points. The basic income grant um, idea is that everybody gets... For example, 3,000 rand a month is not linked to unemployment. Everybody gets it. So people will still work if they want to earn more, which most people do. But if, if you took the government budget of, that's assigned to social spending, which is huge, but it's not all getting through to people on the ground due to corruption and inefficiencies, if you put the cash in the hands of the people, you would transform this economy. I mean, if you could just imagine and think out the box, it sounds like a crazy idea, but imagine a family of five living in a shack suddenly getting an income of 3,000 rand a month each. They could start their own small business. They could eventually get themselves out of, out of poverty. And I really wish some, some of the experts in this country could, could maybe look at that. Okay. Um, All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Sheila. We've noted that. 0891-10428. The lines are chock-a-block. We'll read some messages and we'll get a response. And thank you so much for tuning in and uh, start of a brand new series this morning uh, where we have uh, various thought leaders from across uh, the uh, South African landscape writing for us exclusively here on AM Live on SAFM for the Forum at 8. And we posted on our website. You can go and read it. Only 600 words long uh, maximum. And 
and uh, then we discuss the ideas that they posit. And this morning we are speaking to Associate Professor in Public Law at the Department um, of Law at the University of Cape Town, Professor Richard Calland. And uh, Professor Calland uh, contends that what we are seeing at the moment is South Africa at a crossroads. And he says that the country seems to be gripped by growing tensions as it approaches a political precipice. And of course, uh, what will the end look like in all of this? Where are we headed as a nation? Many questions coming through, many comments. And uh, very interestingly, um, some of the comments being raised, and I'll read some of the messages later on. But uh, before I get back to the lines, let me just get a response from you, Professor Talent, uh, with regard to the calls there from Mtandegi and Sheila. Yeah, well, first, uh, on, on uh, the comment about uh, Ellen Zilla, I, I agree with the caller entirely. Um, the ANC has its own leadership challenge at the moment, but the DA also has its own version of that. It's in a smaller frame, perhaps, and it's not about who leads the party. It's about the influence of a former leader. And it's quite clear that Zilla is out of line with the, the modern current thinking of of Mamusi um, Mamani. And uh, Mamani has taken a step to ensure there'll be disciplinary action that hasn't yet uh, played out, but it remains to be seen whether the party will have the courage to do what I think it has to do, which is to remove her. She has to be recalled from the premiership of the Western Cape. She has to be put aside, and it's a key moment for the end. It doesn't grasp that metal. It doesn't show its commitment to uh, eradicating racist uh, thoughts within its, within its party, it's never going to convince black voters that it should be the rightful home for them if they move away from other parties such as the ANC. So it's a big moment for the DA as well. Uh, on, his, on his broader point, I, I mean, I think where I would disagree with him, like, he essentially accused me of playing the, the man, not the ball, in terms of my criticism of Mr. Zuma and other people's criticism. I, th- I think that's wrong, because in fact, this call for radical economic transformation doesn't find expression in ANC policy documents. Um, and there is a contest, not just for the succession of the ANC at the moment, but a contest for control over, over policy-making within the ANC. If you read the, the statements of the, of the uh, Economic Transformation Committee of the ANC, which is led by Enoch Godongwana, um, uh, you'll see that there is a very different approach there. It's about inclusive growth. It's about transforming the economy, absolutely, recognizing that what we have is unsustainable, um, and about ensuring that a, a larger number of people have a stake in the economy and, and taking away white domination of the economy, but ensuring that it goes in a progressive direction. It's a sustainable direction. It's not about giving space for new kleptomaniacs to come in and, 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 and capture the state. This is really what the, the heart of the matter, in my view. So we'll take a few more calls, uh, 0891-104-208. And uh, then just uh, running through some of the comments before I go to those calls, because uh, we might not have much time, seeing as to how many calls we have coming through. Uh, just a few here. This one from... Um, uh, it's uh, sorry, it just jumped on me there. Many people commenting on um, our first caller, Mtandegi, uh, not agreeing with Mtandegi, but then there are others who do agree with him, and I don't want us to get personal there. He's entitled to his views, is Mtandegi, as are you. Nkosing uh, Pilem Kunu says, as long as the issue of land um, is a barrier to entry and is not resolved, government will struggle to transform this economy. Sediko says, uh, the struggle 
struggle has never been primarily about voting. It has been about land ownership and equal economic participation. Uh, Vido says radical economic transformation without radical educational transformation is meaningless. Unati also agrees with that, says um, for as long as we don't transform our education system uh, without good quality education, uh, we don't have a basis to build anything on really. Kolani Sikade says this radical economic transformation and land issue by Jacob Zuma, uh, whose ANC has no how as to uh, the implementation. How is it going to be done? It's only noise at this point. And then Mzugisi says, what happened to the uh, NDP policy? What is this radical economic transformation? Who is leading and when will it be implemented? Some of the questions coming through. Let's hear from Jane in Johannesburg. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Sakina. Thanks. I, I also would like to just um, comment on, on the first caller. He, I think he reflects many people who have called in recently on the show rushing to the defense of, of Zuma and the ANC. And very hopeful in, in all of this, like what your speaker there is saying, with, with all of the catastrophe that's happening in the country at the moment, usually the, the darkest part of night is just before the the sun comes up. So I'm very hopeful that all of this seeming chaos that's going on at the moment in our country is going to result in in a great triumph at the end. And I just, I I would like to really encourage people that it's it's the time for party loyalty to any party is, is, is gone. We have to look at what is best for South Africa, not what is best for one person or one and that time of, of party loyalty has to be gone now, and we have to look at what is best for our country. Well, thank you so much, Jane. James in Alspreet, good morning. Hello, James. But I don't think you can talk about state capture unless you look at the SACP. Um, they, they piggyback the ANC into power. They wield power way out of proportion to the numbers on the ground. They sit back, pick and choose populist issues, and they don't take responsibility for anything. Um, I visited Cambodia, the killing fields, so I've seen what they're capable of doing, and then, and then I stayed with the Cameroons, the people that did the killing. Now, you couldn't meet a more hospitable, friendly bunch of people, and you ask yourself, how could they have done such terrible things to their fellow human beings? And the answer is simple. They were illiterate, they were poor, and before they knew it, they were presented with a situation where you either, get, you either murder the guy in front of you or you stand aside and you get murdered yourself. Now, all you have to do is just look at all the rhetoric coming out of this country. I don't think the SACP has ever stopped trying to make this country ungovernable. They would far rather have a revolution than implement good governance. And as soon as the moment you mention good governance, then you're a racist, you're an imperialist, you're all sorts of things. I think it is time to have a closer look at their role in society and what influence they are having on, on the ANC, on, on, um, on, 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 on all the political commentators in the country. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, that's James and Nelspread. Um Zwana in East London, good morning to you. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Good morning, Sakina. Good morning to the prof and the listeners. I don't have a question for the professor, but I have a comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, quickly, uh, especially in line with the radical economic transformation, I agree completely with the, that Radical economic transformation is just radical economic transformation. There's not there's nothing transformative about that. I'm part of the I'm a BMF member, 
chair in one of the branches. So when transformation is used loosely like this, uh, it, it does not feel well to us because we live transformation. We are advocating for transformation on a daily basis in our organization and our programs that we conduct. But uh, when, when you look at South Africa currently and you look at all these terminologies that are being thrown into the public discourse that do not have a meaning, political meaning, and ultimately returns and service deliver to our people, you wonder where, where are we really taking our country. There are a lot of these terminologies, Sakina. You, there is a national development plan that is not delivering at all. There is nine-point plan that is not delivering at all. There is black industrialist program that you don't hear consistent reporting on it. You've got MTSF, you've got many. They are all of national importance provinces are supposed to plug into this. There is radical economic transformation that does not, that is not meaningful as we speak today. I think what, what really needed to be done, South Africa needed to have a transformation plan that every other plan can plug into. What is transformative about agriculture, rural development, roads, employment, economy, social, every other element that you can think of in which our people are interacting with. Because not any other thing can be successful if our country is not formed. We we know sport is not transformed. Anything is just not transformed. My second point, uh, Sakina, I want to agree with the caller, I think it was Sheila, if I'm pronouncing her name right. Mm -hmm. She mentioned a very quite economics-aligned a suggestion that can you imagine if South Africans were to get given 3,000 rand, whether they are working or not? Just to add on that very important point, maybe it does not make sense to other people. That would mean if if our government gives South Africans 3,000 rand minimum, everyone, that would mean, uh, and also we say we are, you are only allowed to buy in these prescribed or chosen uh, uh, supermarkets, retailers, that so that we can keep the government money circulating within the government uh, 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 circles, then ultimately we'll pay less tax. We won't have much money leaving this country uh, with these big institutions that are not necessarily paying tax here, but taking the money outside the country. We won't have uh, employment that is taken away, that is claimed to be taken away, okay. if we can have that, yes. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mzwana. And um, lovely, you know, to hear the suggestions uh, for possible solutions coming through as well. But I think Mzwana raises a very important um, point there about all the rhetoric that we currently find ourselves having to wade through, Professor Calland, and all the terminology that is thrown at the populace. And let's talk about that for a moment. Well, I agree with him, and I thought uh, Zwani's comments were very helpful because he, he points out that transformation, let alone radical economic transformation, is a deeply contested term. It means different things to different people. It's heavily ideological. You can have transformation, which is progressive, which spreads wealth and power, such as through a basic income grant of the sort he was uh, mentioning. And in fact, that idea and ideas like that is exactly the sort of conversation we need to have in the country. What bold economic policy steps can be taken that will build social capital, that will bring people into the economy, which will re- redistribute wealth and power. That's the real issue. Other people, however, the nationalists, the populist nationalists I was referring to earlier, who seem to have captured the state, who seem to have captured President Zuma, are talking about radical economic transformation of a very different sort. They're talking about 
taking hold of a democratic state and using it for personal advantage, for the advantage of a small number of people. That has to be contested. So the, the, the campaign against Mr. Zuma is actually not just about Mr. Zuma. Yes, he needs to go because he's leading the country very badly. And his decision to remove Pravin Gordon was an act of extraordinary damage to the country that will hit, in the end, the poorest people hardest because government borrowing will become more expensive, the national fiscus will be put under pressure, inflation will go up, and, and everything will cost more for people who can't afford it. So uh, it's, an, an investment is, is less uh, likely as a result of that decision. So that alone makes him unfit for government. The Safe South Africa-led campaign to remove him is terribly important. But it's also very encouraging. It shows that this is a vibrant democracy where people are willing to get on the streets, willing to have their voices heard. But mm. that conversation has to look beyond President Zuma. It has to say, well, what comes next? It has to be ensure, to ensure that the people around him who are also corrupt need to be pushed out and that we need to have a, a, an intelligent conversation about how to transform the economy and which is progressive and which commits to the transformative vision of the Constitution. It is also a very contentious one because uh, there are questions about who leads uh, these campaigns and their credibility in leading uh, these campaigns to uh, basically um, try and agitate for the sort of change that we want to see as a country. What's your take on that? Well, I can, I've, I've read a great deal about that in recent times. All I can say is that the people that I know who lead these campaigns are like people like Sipo Pachana, who are thoroughly credible and thoroughly trustworthy. They are people who are progressive in their intent. They believe in the rule of law, not just to preserve and protect current interests, but as a transformative vehicle to ensure that the country actually moves to a different place where wealth and power is, is uh, equally distributed. Now, I, I believe in that sort of leadership, and I believe that there is a, a social democrat, uh, sensible left alternative available to us that has to pivot around issues of inclusive growth. What it has to do now is convince other people, and it has to come up with a narrative that is, that is persuasive and which can cope with the power of, of a populist branding called radical economic transformation. That is part of, part of the crossroads we face at, at, at this point. It's not just about Zuma. Yes, he must go, but it's also about what comes next in terms of economic policy, in terms of, of and, and, and building con- a consensus around a different form of, of, of transformation. I, I read Chris uh, Malikani's comments and uh, his eight-page paper on this issue with great interest because he talks about progressive forces and about a progressive force-led uh, transformational agenda. And I think that's a very perhaps a very good starting point to have this uh, mm. conversation. More rhetoric, I mean, uh, more terminology, because what is progressive? Who is progressive? And, of course, there are those who would disagree uh, with uh, your description there of uh, what a Sipopitiana brings. And that's all good and well. We'll have all of these conversations. Uh, let's take more calls. 891 Solomon from KZN, good morning. Good morning, Sakina, to the professor and to your listeners. I just want to make a comment. In as far as I'm concerned, uh, we are diverting from real, genuine issues. Um, even if we can remove the present order of the day, we will still remain with the socio-economic conditions which depicts unemployment, inequality, and poverty. And... Uh, the status quo is not sustainable. What has happened now, the private sector and whosoever who are disgruntled, because of their ability 
and influence and capacity they have co-opted mouthpieces in the form of Sipopichana. The real poor people who are outside the primary economic activity are silent because they do not have the means. Even if Zuma can go, we will still going to remain with a national question of the majority of our people languishing in poverty. I think what we're doing, we are digressing to even further crisis. The only feasible and possible plan uh, that you can have to take South Africa into the future is through the present government, in as far as I'm concerned. Otherwise, we are going to have a revolution uh, by the poor people, which is going to take back because we averted revolution in the country through negotiations. And we allowed that property must remain with those people who had property before and not distribute it equitably and fairly. And as long as that has not happened, we still owe our day in history where we are going to have serious revolution. These people are just having uh, something which I don't think is going to bring about the results that they assume because they are camouflaging their desire to maintain the status quo as opposed to dealing with socio-economic conditions that uh, are bedeviling South Africa today. All right, uh, Solomon, uh, there are a few questions that I wanted to ask there, but I won't in the interest of time. Let's move on to um, uh, Itumeleng in Mahikeng. Good morning. Morning, Sakina. Mine is just a few uh, comments and a question. Sakina, this, the radical socio-economic transformation, what, what is this thing? And, and, and is it do, do, does it only happen at national level? Do the provinces, municipalities know about this thing? Is it, is it a program that is aligned within a broader planning cycle of government flowing from local to national? And, and if it's not, how do you then draw a, 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 a parallel between a, a radical socioeconomic transformation and NDP? What is NDP and what is radical social? Is radical socioeconomic transformation embedded in the product in 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 in, in, in can in, does it find expression in the ndp and and how how are we going to, to do it remember i'm scared sakina because we've been changing terminology from look we started by saying we'll create six million jobs we we we're now at a point where we're saying we're going to create six million job opportunities terminology keeps changing sakina and and this is bringing confusion into this country because if 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 if, if radical socioeconomic transformation is a is a is a, is a, is a government policy do we know about it as municipalities? Do we know about it as provinces? Do we know about it as national? How do we then contribute to it? So, so it, it, I'm confused, Sakina. Maybe the professor will, will, will clear this confusion. Maybe. Thank you very much. I'm sure he'll try. Thanks, Itumeleng. Um, Mike in the Southern Cape, good morning. <coughs> Hi, Sakina. Um, I have a question for Richard Calland. I think the single most important thing he has said is that our parliamentary system is fatally flawed. We, none of us know who our MPs are, or who, and we have no vote for the president. To that I would add the insertion of national politics into local government. My question is, how do we actually change that? And uh, just one other thought. The word economics <coughs> came into the English language in the 16th century. It is from a Greek word which means home management. And look what a combination of big business and politicians have managed to do to change that. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, Professor? Professor Callan? Yes. Yes. Um, interesting uh, observation about 
of a parliamentary reform. Uh, I hesitate to say that's the solution. Uh, I think that uh, the idea that we need a parliamentary system in which MPs are more directly accountable to, to the electorate is, uh, as it was 15 years ago when Pascal Slabert recommended such a reform, is still a conversation worth uh, having. The, the current system, and I suspect this will be the pivotal issue in the constitutional court case in the next couple of weeks, is the relationship between the individual Member of Parliament and his or her oath of office and, and allegiance to the Constitution versus their loyalty to their political party that puts them into uh, Parliament. And, and I think one of the arguments is that at the moment that balance is not right, that individual MPs are, are forced to be too loyal to their, to their parties, and that doesn't give enough space for real debate in Parliament, and it certainly doesn't give them the space to make a free choice on a, an important issue such as a no confidence vote. And um, uh, uh, Solomon, I think uh, it was, who spoke about change and uh, whether changing the president uh, is necessarily the answer to our problems, uh, the problems that we face as a nation at the moment, uh, economically and otherwise. So do you think that that will necessarily change things for the better or worse? Well, let me give a lawyer's answer, Sakina. It depends. It depends on what happens next, as I said before. It depends on whether, in fact, the institutions of the state that have been captured, and there are several, can be reclaimed, whether a new institutional integrity can be built. And I bumped in, I've been in the Eastern Cape this, this weekend at a wedding, I bumped into many former public servants who are anxious to serve the country, but they want to return to public service only when they feel that the uh, institutions will be will be clean when there will be good leadership again and when they can serve their country in a way that they once did. Uh, so that means that whoever succeeds Jacobson has to come in with a decisive mandate to clean up uh, the state captured, uh, the captured state institutions, as well as to lead their party, the ANC, to a new place. Um, but can talk they? Of renewal, can well, they? I, I th- <laughs> given the extent of these patronage networks, given the fact that as uh, Nkosa, uh, not um, Nkosazana, uh, Batabile Dlamini, and uh, she, stay, she called them small anyana skeletons that everybody has. So do you think they can actually clean that up? Well, it's going to require tough and brilliant leadership. And whether there are tough, brilliant leaders available to take the country and to take the ANC to that new, renewed place remains to be seen. We, we have to believe so. We have to believe that there is a strong political push from around the country calling for that. Um, and I, my sense, going back to our first part of this, this excellent conversation, Sakina, is that the country is in a 94 moment of renewal, but it needs a reboot. It needs an absolute reboot that enables new political space to open up for real, intelligent debate about how the economy should be transformed. And that, in the end, is a leadership question. So the leadership question is important. And the first step, I have to say, is for the current president to be removed because he is not fit for office. But can we also expect the very same people, um, the political elite uh, politicians who brought us to this precipice to be the ones to lead us to the promised land? I, I happen to be optimistic about that. I think not only is it, this is a democracy at work with many important institutions, not least the Constitutional Court that is superbly and independently led by a strong Chief Justice, Not only do I believe in those institutions, but I think there are also very good people in the public service, in the ANC, in other important parts of our our political society who are willing to step forward. In civil society, for example, a very strong, good, well-led civil society organization. This country is abundantly talented. It's just about ensuring that they have the political space to maneuver. And that 
requires leadership. Political leadership has to create that space so that the progressive forces can move back into important institutions and, and drive the country forward. Well, uh, just a few quick messages once again. Uh, this one from at MJ underscore Masaela says, more like a T-junction that we find ourselves at than a crossroads. There's no middle road here. Either radicalize for inclusive growth or normalize for inequality. Uh, Buzwebake says, oh, whoever believes the president is the right man needs to have their head examined. And then uh, this one from Zeta Zana, uh, JZ goes around talking about radical economic transformation, but his Minister of Finance says that there will be no policy changes. Confused. Uh, Lionel Swart says South Africa has been at this crossroads since 2008 and we cannot stay here forever. Uh, Vonga Mieni says ANC is using the land policy as their political card due to a loss in support. Uh, same thing that ZANU-PF did. Uh, they will never implement it and they know it too. Uh, Mugabe did the same thing when the MDC gained support and uh, many other comments and of course uh, safm.co.za that's our webpage you can uh, post your comments there as well tweet or facebook us and uh, those that we didn't manage to read we will storyify on our webpage as well but uh, professor richard callan thank you so much for your thoughts this morning really appreciated and a great start to the series Wonderful to be on the show, Sadina, and good luck with the rest of these very, very important conversations, and congratulations for hosting them. Well, thank you so much, Associate Professor in Public Law at the University of Cape Town, Professor Richard Calland. And of course, we have more where that came from. Quite a number of people lined up. Some of you are saying we need to hear women, we need to hear black women. And, and as I said, we have actually uh, put out a brief to a cross-section of South Africans, and we are taking them as they come. Uh, it's not for a lack of trying if we are unable to get certain people to be a part of this particular series but it promises to be quite an exciting one uh, given today's response and reaction to uh, Professor Richard Callant saying that we are um, in we are at a crossroads and and, and uh, having that sort of uh, retro feel at the moment, the pre-94 feel. So we'll talk more about South Africa, the various aspects of what we are confronted with at the moment. Thanks for your participation. As always, thanks to the production team. It is 9 o'clock and time for the news with Nomsa Mdouli.